Hello and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast, or even welcome if this is one of your first times listening. Our listener numbers have jumped up recently since we made the switch to our own feed. So if this is one of your first times listening, welcome. I'm Daniel Connolly. Got Megan Gower with me. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. Since we last talked to you, it is 2023. 2022 is over. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but UConn women's basketball tweeted something along the lines right around either before or after New Year's that 2022 was really good to us. And I was trying to figure out what about 2022 was actually good to UConn women's basketball because um, I'm thinking about it. Okay, so the photos they have are four trophies. It is going to uh, the final four, the winning the regional trophy, the two Big Easts, and PK-85. Again, sure, but like UConn's going to win, has won pretty much those four trophies every year for the last 15 years. I don't think that's high of an accomplishment. What hasn't been good this year? Let's see. Everyone's gotten hurt. Paige Becker's knee exploded. Um, they lost their first ever national championship game. I mean, like, I feel like those those few things are enough, but like there's a very lengthy list of things. Gino's mom died. Uh there's a lot of things that happened in 2022 that weren't that great for UConn women's basketball. So I think the bar is very low in order for 2023 to be better, but I also don't want to present that as a challenge to, you know, fate or the basketball gods or like whatever. I just think it could get better. Yeah, hopefully they're going to have a little bit better luck in 2023 than they've had in 2022 because as much as they did accomplish it, yeah, it's been a bit of a rough year for them. I also don't know what you could even like have for new year's resolution like sure turn the ball over less absolutely but i don't know have less freak injuries occur how are you <laughs> going to prevent Aaliyah edwards from getting pushed into az fud and hurting her near and, and taking her out for a month or having nika mule fall and hit her head on Aaliyah edwards knee and be out a game or have aubrey griffin test positive for covid while she's home freak things happening so i guess just New Year's resolution is to walk under fewer ladders, break fewer mirrors, uh, <laughs> spill salt less often, step on fewer sidewalk cracks. Like, I feel like that's kind of just maybe hold more uh, seances in worth or something. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> it's not really something they can necessarily do anything about, but... Hopefully, just some of that bad luck gets less left in the last year. I am popping in from the future here. We recorded on Monday night. On Tuesday, UConn announced that Caroline Ducharme is in concussion protocol after suffering the injury in Monday on practice and will miss at least two games, the team's trip to Butler and Xavier. There's no timetable on her return because she's in concussion protocol. So, their bad luck continues. Anyways, keep that in mind for the rest of the episode because we do talk about Caroline Ducharme a bit further on. That all still applies, but obviously now she's hurt and isn't playing. Anyways, back to the show. The good news is, since we've last recorded, feels like UConn has pretty much figured out how to play with the players that they have available. It was obviously an issue in the Princeton... Well, the 
the Notre Dame, the Princeton, and the Maryland, that three-game stretch. You lose AZ in the middle of the Notre Dame game. That one was a hard one to recover from. You lose Nika Mule and Lou Lopez Seneschal against Princeton. You just hang on for dear life there. And then you just had nobody available against Maryland. When you're starting someone who was supposed to go to a junior college until nine days before your semester started, you should probably have a pretty low bar of expectations for how you're going to do in that game. Since then, I feel pretty good in saying that they've figured out how to play without AZ FUD. They've had to be without Aubrey Griffin for the last two games due to COVID. They really seem to have a good sense of what their strengths are, what their limitations are, and what they can do to lean into those strengths and lessen those limitations. Having Dorky Uhas back is obviously a very big factor in that, as we've seen, as we'll talk about. But also other people stepping up. Caroline Ducharme. Nika Mules had a couple big scoring nights. Lou Lopez Seneschal continues doing Lou Lopez Seneschal things. Aliyah Edwards has somehow taken her game to another level after already doing pretty good this season. So the last three games, and we did talk about Seton Hall a little bit last episode, but these last three games, Seton Hall, Creighton, Marquette, all of those have been pretty promising in terms of the way that UConn's played and for what the future holds, assuming they ever get everyone back fully healthy and synced up again. Yeah, exactly. I think you've seen a lot of really promising things over the last few games and knowing that this team is knock on wood getting closer to being at full health. I think the future looks pretty bright for where this team is at right now and then what they're going to be able to add back to be even better in the the coming week or two. So I feel like especially that Creighton game stands out as kind of being like this team that really has it figured out. Yeah, we've talked about all year. Creighton is very clearly the number two team in the Big East, and we don't care what the AP poll has to say about it. Really, the eye test, the metrics, everything line up with Creighton being not only the second best team in the Big East, but very clearly in that large tier of women's basketball where, you know, there's definitely, what did we say, like the top eight or nine are pretty clearly above the rest, or I don't know, maybe it's down to six with how the last week has gone, but... They feel like they're firmly in that tier with the NC States and the Iowa States and the UCLA's and the Maryland's and the Michigan's and the Arizona's of the world as just a very solid second, I don't know, second class, second tier team. I don't think they're a national championship contender, but they're still a really good team. And for UConn to come out and just absolutely dominate them from wire to wire that's not something that we've seen from a UConn team against another good team in the conference, even when they've been fully healthy in since the AAC days, they really haven't done that against the top tier of the big East. Now they do that on the road with two really key players out 33 points per game on the bench, not to mention the shooting that AZ brings and the rebounding and defense that Aubrey brings that's probably the win of the season right now. And that's coming off a Seton Hall game that was also wildly impressive with the way they played. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of things stood out in that Creighton game, but really just the way that they came out from the start. And I think it was like a 9 run or something like that they opened up the game on and just really buried Creighton in that first quarter. Like the game was pretty much over by the end of the first quarter, which we've seen them do to teams like Providence and teams like that, but not necessarily 
you know, a top 15, top 20 type opponent. Uh, and they were able to do that, not at full health against Creighton. And then, I mean, Creighton is undersized, but I think what stood out was not just that, like, UConn was able to take advantage of their size advantage, but the way that they did it. I mean, 20 rebounds for Lee Edwards, 23 points, and then 22 points and 18 rebounds for Darker Yuhas. There's taking advantage of your size advantage, and then there's just absolutely dominating inside, and that's what the two of them did. Right. The way that these two bigs are playing, and I wrote about this, how when Dorka Yuhas first came back, I don't think it was fair to say that if anyone said that they knew exactly that this is what Dorka was going to be, that's not within the program, they were just either very lucky with their prediction or they were flat out lying because we haven't really seen what Dorka can do at UConn last year. Obviously, the inconsistencies inconsistencies begotten by the injuries which killed her conditioning, and obviously the wrist ends her season. This year, she plays one full healthy game against Northeastern, who I don't think anyone's going to be impressed by anyone's performance against Northeastern. Plays decently well after breaking her thumb in the second quarter against Texas, but again, you're talking about one game in which she had an injury as trying to project out what she's going to do comes back looks pretty good against florida state looks pretty good against seton hall but then it was that creighton game where we really started to see the dorky uhas that that gino oriama imagined he was getting when he got her from ohio state skilled with the ball tough in the lane uses her size really well capable of scoring in a lot of different ways capable of putting the ball on the ground and getting to the basket capable of stepping out and taking some shots even if that part of her game hasn't come along and I don't think that part of her game is really gonna emerge until she gets that splint off her left hand on that left thumb she said that it really makes it tough to shoot and kind of without saying it admitted that her shot's not gonna get there until she gets that splint off but I think that's perfectly fine she can knock those shots down enough where other teams have to defend it we didn't know what we were going to get out of Dorka Yuhas when she came back. And the fact that she is, I'm not sure she still is, but she was averaging a double-double before the Marquette game. That's a level that I didn't think UConn was going to get. And obviously the opponents aren't there. That's not a uh, murderer's row of opponents and bigs right there, but just the way she's playing she talked about not being so afraid and being paralyzed by the fear of making mistakes. She just goes out there, she plays, she does her best, and that gives UConn a really formidable front court combo with Aaliyah Edwards, who's seemingly taken another step forward this season after already being really good to start the year. Yeah, exactly. I think we've seen a lot from having these past few games where we've gotten to see the two of them play side by side, which with Dorka being out, we didn't get for quite the stretch. And I think you see what they were missing in like that Notre Dame game where I think having some more size would have been really critical. And maybe, uh, you know, it was hard to say like if Dorka would have impacted that game coming out of it because you just hadn't seen that much from her this season. But I think now like looking back at that, she definitely would have impacted that game. Same thing with the Maryland game. So I think you've seen that this is a really strong front court. And I feel like going into the season, maybe that was one of the bigger question marks for this UConn team. Like they were supposed to have the talent in the backcourt. And when they get easy fun back, they will. But did they have what they needed in that front court? And I think especially the way Aaliyah Edwards is playing, but also what we've seen from Dorka Yuhas since she's been back on the floor, it feels like they have that that strong front court as well to go along 
with the talent they have in the backcourt. Yeah, this feels like the first time since uh, it depends where you want to draw the line. At least the with the opponents they're playing, I'd say since Nafisa Collier and Gabby Williams were in the front court, that UConn's front court is a strength and not just, you know, you get what you get from them. I think you could even argue that with how small those two players were, I mean, Nafisa was only 6'1", which is shorter than Caroline Ducharme. And then Gabby Williams obviously was a converted guard, so she was 5'11", which is the same size as Paige Beckers. Obviously had the athletic ability to jump out of the gym. But you could even make an argument that this is as strong of a front court as UConn's had since Brianna Stewart graduated and Morgan Tuck and that combo down low. But... Yeah, it's not just a facet of this team. It's an absolute strength. And I feel pretty good saying that Aaliyah Edwards is a very, very high-end elite big this season. Even if she hasn't had the opportunity to show it against other bigs, the way that she's playing and the way that she's attacking, it's hard to imagine that not translating against bigger players the way that it didn't for other former UConn Post players. And then Dorka... You know, I think we have to see that a little more, but it's kind of the same thing. It's a much smaller sample size, but she's got the size where she should be able to handle those other big, big players. So, yeah, Gino said a couple weeks ago that UConn's only going to go as far as its front court takes it. And I think it's very fair to say that that was a question mark coming in because it's been a question mark for a few years now. But as we've seen over the last few games, that front court is a big reason why UConn's not only won a lot of these games without AZ FUD, but has won its last or a lot of its last few games comfortably and with ease and in blowout fashion from the start. Yeah, exactly. I think it's going to be really interesting as we get a, not to get ahead of ourselves, but we get into DePaul next weekend where they actually have a kind of a tough front court player to play against in Morrow. And then about a month out when you get to a game like South Carolina, where you obviously have pretty much the best big in the country seeing what this front court looks like but i think everything is pointing in a positive direction right now it's something that we haven't seen from yukon in a long time and if this front court continues playing the way it does and aubrey griffin comes back and is that really interesting element where this season she's really kind of floated between being that forward that can get in there and rebound and being a guard that can play out in the perimeter. You have someone like that that can bridge the gap between the front court and the back court. And from all indications, it sounds like AZ FUD is coming back soon-ish, whether that's on this trip out to the Midwest or it's against DePaul on Sunday. We still don't know. We don't have any clear answer. It seems pretty clear that Aubrey Griffin's going to be back for... Butler on Tuesday, but you get those two back and suddenly you've got a really dangerous team that if the shots aren't falling from the outside, that doesn't mean it's a death sentence for UConn. They don't need to hit shots to win games because if those bigs down low are playing the way that they can and they're getting offensive rebounds and they're limiting second chances, that makes UConn a really difficult team to defend. Yeah, exactly. I think it's what's making this look like one of the best teams in the country even without Izzy Fudd on the floor. I mean, I don't actually quite factually no one has played as tough a schedule as they have. And they're still at you know, 10 and two or whatever it is on the season. And I think once they're 11 and two and getting these pieces back, it's it's going to be a big thing. Also, if UConn played Maryland tomorrow instead of Butler, 
with the roster that they have, and let's give them Aubrey Griffin back, but not AZ FUD, I feel pretty confident saying that UConn would beat Maryland comfortably just by the way that they're playing and and the difference in the way that they're playing from just the few weeks ago when they did play Maryland on the road. Yeah, I think quite frankly, like to only lose that Maryland game by seven points with what they had available for that game was impressive in itself. So yeah, agreed. I feel pretty confident that you give them a reasonable number of pieces going into that game and they win it. The other thing with AZ FUD's return, and again, we don't know when it's coming, so I don't want to get too deep into, ah, well, like once they get her back, like this, this, and this is going to start clicking. But the one thing Gino always says about AZ and her three-point shooting ability is that any time in the game, she can turn what might be a, I don't know, anywhere in a game, let's just say a seven-point game into a 25-point game in two minutes just because she catches fire from three and suddenly can't miss. We've also seen the emergence of everything else in her offensive game. She was averaging essentially 24 points a game before that Notre Dame game. It feels a little unfair that that Notre Dame game counts into her scoring average, but UConn, I don't think, needs her to be scoring 30 points every single game, 25 points every single game. But at the same time, I don't know how teams plan to stop AZ from scoring that many points per game on top of everyone else contributing. So I don't feel like it's AZ gets back. And I mean, there certainly will be a little bit of uh change in terms of what everyone else's numbers look like and the minutes are going to be different but it feels like az coming back is just gonna lift the tide even higher instead of you know coming in and taking a bigger percentage of the pie which is really what might turn take this uconn team and put it over the top which is why again it would be so interesting if AZ FUD is fully healthy and UConn is fully healthy for when South Carolina comes to town, because that's going to be the ultimate measuring stick for UConn. That's going to be their only chance to measure themselves against top competition until they get to realistically, probably the final four, right? I don't think a team that UConn plays in the elite eight, if UConn is the team we think they are, is going to give UConn all that much trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends how things fall in the late eight, sure. but I kind of agree with that. Um, I think, I don't know, I think March is going to look very interesting because the way things have been going, I think the seating and everything is going to be very chaotic, so you never know who they might see in an elite eight, but I tend to agree. I think South Carolina is really the measuring stick, and uh, you're not going to get, I think there's kind of becoming a clear, t- smaller top tier, and I just, yeah, I don't know that you're going to see a tougher team until the final four, unless, you know, things fall in a weird way, which the way some of these conferences go very well may happen. Sure. Like if, if Stanford has a couple injuries, like they lose Cameron Brink for two weeks because she twisted her ankle and that comes right as Stanford goes through the gauntlet of PAC 12 play and Stanford drops to a two seed and they end up in the same regional as UConn. I'm not going to be booking my tickets to Dallas immediately, but if everyone outside the top, I guess, top six being UConn, South Carolina, Stanford, Ohio State, Notre Dame, and Indiana continue just all beating up on each other, and all of a sudden UConn looks across and they have to go through NC State again to get to the Elite Eight, I'm booking my tickets to Dallas on the day of the selection show. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, I'm just, I don't know. Everything, none of these teams are any good. It's basically what I'm trying to say. Yes, but yeah. precisely. <laughs> Whereas UConn, every single t- opportunity that they have that they're not riddled with injuries looks like a really good team. I mean, it's yeah. a really good team. Whereas I think largely last year, I mean, last year was a whole different story, but the year before that, that was an okay team with page backers that made them really good and made them a final four team. Or you even go back to the Lou and FISA senior year. That was a good team, but Lou and FISA were almost certainly carrying that team as far as they were going to go. This is just a really good team. There's so many different pieces that fit in well with each other and they mix well. And, you know, Creighton, the bigs carry it one game. The backcourt carries it another game. They blend it some games and it's both of them. I mean, this team has so many different ways to beat you. It has so many different types of players. It's just a very well-constructed roster. And I think you can just hear the disappointment when Gino talks about when they were building their roster, they had this vision in mind for what it would be. And it's really easy to see that vision because with Paige Beckers and Ice Brady, I don't want to discount her because Mm -hmm. all accounts were that she was going to make an impact this year. You've got a very, very good roster. And if the team plays the way that they have and you add in the best player in the country and you add in a really good freshman I don't know how anyone beats that team. I think that team goes undefeated and wins a national championship. But this team, not writing this team in ink to be in the national champion or in the final four, and I'm not predicting them right now to win the national championship, but I just think they are a very, very good team in a way that we haven't necessarily seen from UConn in a little while. Yeah, I would say I think it's fair to say that at full health, this is probably pretty clearly right now the number three team in the country. And then we learn a lot more when we get to that South Carolina game. Right. You get to South Carolina. And if you play South Carolina the way that the last time they came up to stores where South Carolina misses chances to win it at the buzzer and Paige has to go off in the fourth quarter to pull him back and then hits an unbelievable shot to seal it at the end of overtime. And that's how they beat South Carolina. I'm not convinced that UConn is the best team in the country just based off that one game on their home court. But if UConn comes out and plays the way they want to play and beat South Carolina, and it doesn't have to be comfortably. I'm not saying that a two-point win isn't convincing, but I think there's a way that UConn, the way UConn plays this game and the way they look against South Carolina is going to be my determination for, are they the best team in the country or are they number three behind South Carolina and Stanford? Because I don't think without that convincing win, you can definitively say that they're better than both of those teams just because how do you compare them to Stanford? Stanford's got a pretty good resume itself. So that's really going to be the one chance we get to see what this UConn team really might be made of until again, at least the elite eight. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, it might be the one chance you get to see what South Carolina is made of too, because the SEC sucks this year. So no, they play uh, LSU who was a number one seed in the last ESPN bracket reveal. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) well i mean last week or last episode lse was coming to manchester community college uh (laughs) for their next home game 
I think they are uh, they're on their way to uh, play the same team that Inesh was going to before <laughs> she committed to UConn. I think that's next on their schedule. So look, that's a tough team. They had their starting point guard was going to be someone who's who ended up at UConn. So like clearly that was going to be a really good team. So it might be a tough test for Kim Mulkey's squad. <laughs> I guess in their defense, they did play Arkansas last week and win. So they're at least actually a top 25 team. That's about all I'm willing to say about them at this point. <laughs> Arkansas starts Sailor Poff and Barger. They're not a good exactly. team. We've gone over this. We've gone Arkansas over this. also also... looked like they forgot how to play basketball for that entire game. So also apparently the broadcast uh took a little shot at the former <laughs> yes. husky there which uh something along the lines of sailor doesn't seem too interested in playing defense so you can understand why she might have wanted to leave yukon not my words the broadcast words paraphrased i didn't unfortunately get to listen to it but i would love a clip of that if anyone has it so yes i refuse to consider arkansas in that uh field of good teams that LSU has played. Exactly. I am actually incredibly curious how that LSU South Carolina game goes. I'm saying I can't wait. Look, I they're really fun to make fun of, but they're still coached by Kim Mulkey. They still have Angel Reese. Like I don't think yeah. LSU's a bad team. No, they're not bad. They're just I just don't know that they're a top ten team. Is really what no. it comes down to. Angel Reese is right. really, really good. I just, the rest of it, I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. And like Kim Mulkey, as much as this pain me, pains me to say it, is a good coach, even if she yes. lacks in the uh, human empathy department. Exactly. I thought it was really funny. ESPN did like a New Year's resolution with a bunch of people in the women's college basketball world around the country, and Kim Mulkey let him off. And she said Mm -hmm. that her New Year's resolution was to drink more water and less soda, which is really funny because I feel like a better New Year's resolution would have been to just do the bare minimum at acting like a human being with a soul. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I also found that amusing. I feel like there's a lot of other things that you could work on, but sure. (laughs) Anyways, uh, back to UConn a little bit. We will get to more on the poll later on, (laughs) but... Another aspect of this team that we've started to see come along in recent games is Caroline Ducharme coming off three really good games, one of her better games against Marquette. And I was really surprised looking at her stats. She had a season high 19 points, seven rebounds. It felt like she had more steals and more blocks and just more impact plays. But I think she only ended up with one or two steals and or one or two blocks and no steals. I don't know if maybe they just missed the stats or something, but it felt like she had a much bigger impact on that game than just points and rebounds. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was also kind of surprised when I looked back at her box score because it did kind of feel like she was just everywhere a bit in that game and she had a really solid performance. So the box score doesn't really feel like it tells the whole story, but I think that's okay. I think we can still say from watching it that it was, I think, by far her best performance of the season. And it's also a string of three good performances now, three games with double figures, three games with five or more rebounds. So she's definitely out there making more of an impact than we saw um, for for most of the start of the season. And I think that's a really positive sign for UConn as you're starting to look at like getting back towards full health. And now what is the depth this team has and having a player like Caroline Duchamp that's playing more at the level that we expect coming in off the bench is going to be huge for them in terms of how deep this roster goes. 
Yeah, and just another point with the box score. She had five turnovers, I believe it was. But I remember vividly there was this one play where I think it was a rebound or something, and she went to chase it down, and she just couldn't quite get her hand on it and kind of knocked it out of bounds. And I saw it. I remember thinking, oh, that would be really unfortunate, but also like appropriate for the season Caroline's had if she got a turnover for that, even though it wasn't by any means a turnover worthy play or something where like she gave the ball up. It was just almost like a deflection on a tough ball to get. I don't know if she actually got credit for that turnover, but I didn't feel like turnovers were a huge problem for her in that game. It didn't feel obvious the way it has in other games. So I wonder if maybe she just got a little bit of a, uh, a tough, a tough scorer on her giving her a few turnovers than she might've actually had. But yeah, that's the Caroline that we kind of saw last year where it's not just the scoring, even though the scoring is a big part of it. It's not just the scoring. And when she does score, it seems to always come in really crucial moments in really important times of the game. I mean, all of her points in the first three quarters came when it was still a single digit game. Then she had 10 points in the fourth quarter, obviously the most important part of the, or nine points in the fourth quarter, the most important part of the game. So it's just what we've come to expect from her. And it's really good to see her continue moving in that direction because they don't need her to be the leading scorer. They don't even need her to be the second option or the third option. But if she just makes plays everywhere on the court, that helps out a lot. And then these big scoring games are going to come and she's going to hit shots at big moments. I really liked Gino's quote that some players shoot the ball well, some players defend well, and Caroline just makes plays when you really need them, and you can't teach that. So it's it's not all the way there yet. She's still got a long way to go, but it's definitely been a very positive stretch for her. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing that stood out to me in this stretch is, especially in the Seton Hall and then the Marquette games, her three-point shooting has really been there, and I think especially – with AZ put out, that's something this team has really kind of needed is someone else to be able to step up on the perimeter so that they can't really lock down Lou outside. And I think that's been a huge piece in those two wins as well is that she's really found that shot from three. And I think going forward, if they can have that as well, that's going to be huge. Yeah, there's no way that she was a, the sub 30% three-point shooter that she finished last season at. <laughs> and she even started, I think, this year 0 for 7, but she's I think 45% since or over her last three games, I think she's either over. uh, So yeah, a very important element when you've got AZ foot out and it's really just Lou out there taking threes and even no Aubrey Griffin too, who's I wouldn't say the greatest three point shooter in the world, but enough of a threat to keep a defense defender out there and not totally back off her. So Really encouraging performances from her. Yeah, exactly. I think a great sign uh, for this team going forward. Paul? The Paul. Oh, boy. <laughs> My favorite topic to rant about. <laughs> of course. UConn moved up three spots to number five, which is much more due to the fact that teams ahead of them lost. And it was a tough week for teams in the top, what, 15 or so? Yeah. Or even the top. 25 i mean unc plummeting nine spots that's that's tough for me to see uconn's five or top top five i should say is south carolina stanford ohio state notre dame uconn's five 
Indiana six, LSU seven. I think the part that we really want to talk about though, is the bottom of the pole here. Well, actually we have to uh, have our, our uh, required Iowa segment. Yes. (laughs) Iowa loses to Illinois who granted is currently essentially the number 26 team in the country. Yeah. Uh, They drop four spots. Creighton loses to UConn, notably a very good team. And they drop the same number of spots, which puts them behind St. John's. Which is just ridiculous. Insane. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, go ahead. (laughs) I don't mean to reiterate this point because we talked about it last episode. But I think in my own personal Big East rankings, I would have St. John's sixth. UConn one, Creighton two, Villanova three, probably Marquette four, Seton Hall five, and you could probably argue if you want to Paul six instead of St. John's, but I think six, and maybe if you really want to be nice, four. They're the fourth best team in the Big East, and somehow the AP poll has them at number two. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. I get that they haven't lost. They also haven't played anyone. They do have that nice win over Creighton. I have a feeling when they get to play the rest of the teams in the Big East that are actually good, that undefeated record is going to go away very quickly. So, yeah, I don't mean it is whatever, but <laughs> it's it's silly. I think the thing that bothers me the most is, like, Iowa at 11-4, with four losses, is at 16 and I do think that Illinois like deserved the votes this time, and they're they're the 26 team now with with that win. But I think we consistently see this with Iowa is that like they were number four to start the season, and every time they beat some unranked team, the unranked team becomes ranked, which isn't necessarily or something they lose to the unranked team, the unranked team becomes ranked. And then Creighton has actually played a harder schedule than Iowa, but they get slotted down at 25 for having basically the same record. With better wins than Iowa has, too. Outside of that one Iowa State run, I think Creighton has a better resume of wins as well. And a better resume of losses. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you throw St. John's in there. That's one bad one. But they lost on the road to Stanford. They lost to another ranked team in there. They, They lost to UConn. Like, those aren't games. They shouldn't be beating UConn. They shouldn't be beating Stanford. Mm hmm. Exactly. Yeah, they're not supposed to win either of those games. According to this poll, St. John's is a top 25 team, so that's not even a bad loss. And then Arkansas. But yeah, I think they have better losses, better wins. I mean, yes, Iowa has that Iowa State win, which is a good win, but their next best win is over Purdue, where Creighton has wins over Villanova, over Nebraska, over South Dakota State. It's just, I mean, it is what it is, but make this. Shows you the level of the big respect the Big East gets in the poll. Yeah, and we're really about to see what type of team St. John's is because this is their upcoming schedule. On Wednesday, it's at Seton Hall. Sunday, Xavier, who sucks, so that that one doesn't count. But then UConn goes down there to UBS Arena to play them. Then they go to Villanova. Then they play Marquette at home. Then they go to DePaul. You had a nice little break when you play Butler. And then it's Seton Hall, Creighton, another break against Xavier. DePaul, Villanova, Marquette, UConn. (laughs) <laughs> that is honestly, yeah. I don't know that they win a game other than the Xavier and Butler games in that stretch. Maybe they pick off one of the DePaul ones, but yeah. I mean, they beat Providence by eight at home, and Providence UConn stinks. was up on 
eight by Providence in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, and their win against Creighton comes at home. Like, I think Creighton was... is going to come out with a vengeance on that February 4th at in their volleyball arena out in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't like to disparage teams for selling out. I don't just like to disparage when there's a good crowd for what a school is historically used to at a women's basketball game, but Creighton playing at their arena that they do. I thought this thing was like 6,000 seats and just, you know, not as big as the arena that the men play at. No, it's like 2000 or 2,500. Don't brag about having a sellout in a 2,500 seat arena. That just makes you look bad. Yeah. Also, like, why aren't you playing that game in the big arena? That's that's what really gets me. It's like, you've got big games like this. Give the women's team the opportunity to draw the crowd. <laughs> You're not even I giving know. them the opportunity. <laughs> well, and that's the thing that I think really gets me about the, uh, the Big East on the women's side is the teams that are kind of lagging behind everyone... Well, uh, there's two exceptions to this, but for the most part, the teams that are lagging behind everyone. Okay, there's three exceptions to this. I'm I'm just like, the problem that I have with the Big East is you've got programs that are absolutely capable of being good because you see what the men do. And in no world is one is a school capable of being really good in a men's sport and not good in a women's sport or even vice versa. Seton Hall, as much as I do really like Walsh Gymnasium, that's tiny. It's like 1,700. Creighton, obviously, as we just talked about. Providence, it doesn't look like a high school gym. It looks like a middle school gym. And as we talked about last year, where they got bumped out of the Dunkin' Donuts Center because the men had to play there, the one time they were going to play there. Georgetown plays in a tiny little arena. I mean, how do you expect those programs to really do much? And it's a huge credit to Tony at Seton hall for what he does with his arena. It's just so frustrating when it's the men play at an NBA sized arena and the women are stuck at the tiny little venue because they're not getting enough, going to get enough fans to sell out the 12,000 seats in the NBA arena. But it's like, could Creighton sell out a 6,000 seat arena, especially with the way they've played recently. I bet they could. I could imagine Villanova having some pretty good crowds this year. I think Marquette does pretty well with its crowds. Same with DePaul. Like you don't have to play in a huge arena. And I don't think it necessarily helps when you're playing games in front of 200 people in a giant arena. When it's only the high school gym or the NBA arena, it's really hard to see where the growth potential is for that program. I mean, as much as we love Tony Bazella at Seton Hall, can Seton Hall really be a Creighton or a De- DePaul or a Villanova type fringe perennial top 25 program in Walsh Gymnasium? I don't know. Maybe he can do it, but it doesn't feel all that likely that that's going to happen. And, you know, Providence had its heyday in the 90s, but I don't think it's a shocker that they haven't been good since then or the 80s, whenever that was. So that's just the really, really frustrating part with the women's side of the big east is you've got these 
programs that are very clearly dedicated to their men's basketball programs, but there's just zero room for the women's program to grow. Yeah. And I think it's really frustrating to see because around the country, I think more and more we're seeing, right? Like these, especially power five tip leagues, they're investing more in their women's programs and they're having the better arenas and the better practice setups and the things that they need to be successful. And as much as like the talent on the floor for the Big East is saying right now that they can compete at that level and be at the level of a power five type conference, the school's lack of investment in providing the arenas and the things that those schools need to really grow and be those types of teams is going to hold them back. And I think that's frustrating to see when you've got the coaches and the players doing what it takes on the floor to get there. I will say maybe I'm being a little too hard on Georgetown for not investing or for forcing their women's program to play in the little gym that they do, because based on how Patrick Ewing is doing with the men's team, (laughs) I think it might just be fair to say that they don't actually care about basketball anymore. Yes. So that one might be a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of an unfair knock, but Providence Providence is, is on the shit list for a reason. I mean, bumping mm-hmm. again, bumping the women's team out of Dunkin' Donuts or it's not the Dunkin' Donuts center anymore, but uh, whatever it is yeah. uh, for, because the men's team had to play there and you couldn't navigate around that. That's just going to stick in my brain, especially when look, I don't know Jim Crawley. He seems like a very nice guy, but especially when you just keep a coach around that's never really done anything for you. It's just very obvious that you don't care. It is it is just so painfully obvious that you do not care how your women's basketball program does. Yeah. And I think there's no, that's not going to grow anything, obviously. No. And credit to St. John's because I think it would be more than fair to criticize St. John's for hanging on to Joe Tartamella as long as they have. I do think just as bad as hanging on or maybe even worse as hanging on to a mediocre coach longer than you should is cycling through coaches too quickly and not giving them a chance to build the program, especially if you as an athletic department know you maybe haven't given that coach a fair shot with the resources that they've had. They play at Karnaseka Arena, which I don't think that is the greatest facility ever built, but First, the men's team plays there too. And while the men have some games at MSG, the women are playing UConn at UBS Arena, which is the Islanders' new rink in the NHL. So you're at least giving the women's team a chance to fill up a bigger arena. And if you even draw a half-decent crowd, then it's something that you can build off, and it gives the student-athletes a really good, unique opportunity. So I feel like St. John's is almost the reverse of what we're complaining about with the big East, because it feels like they're at least trying or from an outsider's perspective, it seems like they're at least trying. Right. Exactly. They're creating that opportunity. And I think that's important. And I think that's exactly what we're saying. You're not seeing from Creighton, right? Like they're just playing that UConn game and there are other big games this season in that little tiny arena and not giving them an opportunity, even if they don't fill up the men's arena, let them fill it up halfway and play there. So I think it's good to see that St. John's is at least trying to do something. Right. And it feels like the uh, Villanova almost feels like the perfect example where I think their on-campus arena is like 6,000 or something. So it's not huge, but it's big enough to at least be a legitimate venue more than just a practice arena for the men. But it's also not 
that big of a deal that they also play in a larger venue for their big men's games off campus. And if the women's team starts getting to a point where they're pushing, let's, if it is a 6,000 seat arena, they're pushing four or 5,000 every game, then that's a good chance where you put the UConn game at the Philadelphia arena. It was called the Wells Fargo center. I don't know if it still is, but put it there, blow out your marketing for that. See if you can get a big crowd there. And then you start, adding in those games as you go forward. I'm not saying that every single team in the Big East should be filling up a 15,000-seat stadium for every single game tomorrow. I mean, we see with UConn men's basketball that they don't – even UConn women's basketball, they don't do that with every game at XL. But, again, it's just the opportunity for growth to build your fan base and to build your program. So many of these Big East schools just cut themselves at the knee. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it becomes especially important when you look at like that these teams have found success this year and they're they're playing at a high level and creating that opportunity for people to see that. I feel the same way about the like TV deal not being catching up with oh. how good the league is and the fact that all these like top twenty five matchups are getting relegated to flow sports where no one can watch them. It's brutal. At the same time, like I don't totally know what the Big East's alternative is there. Yeah, I I don't I don't think ESPN plus is totally an option when Fox is your main is your main sponsor. I think that one's a little bit more of a uh, poor circumstances. But from all accounts, Fox is not going to have the next big, big East dealer. That's how it seems like it's trending in the next few years. So ESPN plus is like the greatest gift the sports gods have given us in recent years. So. If the Big East was on ESPN Plus, oh man, yeah, that would be a lot better. I think Flow Sports just sucks, but I would even just like them to see them. I know they can't do it for all the games, but there probably is a handful of these games that like things could be moved, so it could go on to an FS2 or something because it is a bigger game than it was originally going to be. And I would have liked to see something like that happen occasionally. Yeah, plan ahead a little bit, get more of those games on the schedule. Even if they end up flopping as top 25 matchups, the more you put out there, the better chance you're going to have of having these good games. So, Right. And even if they weren't top 25 matchups, like you're still getting people like Maddie Segrist, like Anissa Morrow, like a good Creighton team on TV. Like, I think that's important. Well, just to give another uh, credit to another Big East program in seemingly showing a pulse in their women's program butler who uconn plays on tuesday they uh parted ways with kurt godlevsky godlevsky godlevsk never knew how to pronounce his name this past (laughs) season he had a few good seasons in there but it really really fell apart last year he had one they had one win the whole season They get rid of him and they hire Austin Parkinson, who was the IUPUI coach. They already have more wins this season than they had in their last two seasons combined. So that feels like a pretty good sign that they're at least trying to move in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. And IUPUI is a program that has had a lot of success in the mid-majors over the last couple of years. So I think that's a really good hire and hopefully something that's going to turn into some sustained success for this team. On a random note, I searched Butler women's basketball coach because I always get Melanie Moore and Kurt Godlesk mixed up in my <laughs> head because both those schools just, I can't find a distinction between them. 
when you search that on Google, Kurt still pops up as their head coach. So, oh my God. (laughs) What else is new? (laughs) Before we wrap it up here earlier today, I was watching the winter classic at Fenway park Bruins and penguins. UConn men's hockey is actually going to play there an outdoor game on Saturday against Northeastern. And it got me thinking if UConn women's basketball was going to play an outdoor game. And I tried to restrict it to Connecticut because that felt, you know, most appropriate. Where would they play? And I've been thinking about this for hours and I can't come up with like, what would be a really cool location for them to play a basketball game on? Like Rentschler field does nothing for me. That would just be playing an outdoor game to play an outdoor game. Yale bowl. I mean, maybe would be a little cooler because it's more of a historic venue, but even still not so much uh, somewhere in like Hartford, but it's not like there's a super iconic place to play in Hartford. My two ideas would be to play an outdoor game like at the baseball stadium, because they have so much like berm seating that it would probably be really cool to have just I don't know how many they can actually hold there, but I could bet they could get close to 10,000 where you're just sitting on the slope of the stadium. But, you know, this is not factoring in weather or anything like that. And but if you were factoring in weather and you sold the right number of tickets, then if it did rain or there was some issue with the weather, it would not be hard to move it to Gamble or you paint basketball lines on the old tarmac of the Red Schiller Field Airport and play there. Those are my two ideas, but I, I really can't think of what a good like winter classic equivalent would be for UConn basketball. Yeah, I feel like I must be missing something because there has to be like someplace iconic in Connecticut that it would like make a lot of sense to play a game, but I'm just like really struggling with where that would be. Now, I feel like Mystic is like kind of like great thing would be Connecticut but like I don't know where on earth you would play an outdoor basketball game down there so I'm really struggling <laughs> on the deck of one of the ships at Mystic Seaport I don't even that know that would if be cool enough. yeah I don't know if it's big enough that would be pretty cool if it was possible but my other thought was I don't know if the nuclear subs down in Groton are big enough to have a basketball court but that would also be sick yeah that would be pretty cool but I like largely don't think that's possible no I don't so yeah anyways if you have any suggestions please let us know because i will certainly be thinking about this for the rest of the night but (laughs) on that note that'll do it for this episode of chasing perfection be sure to subscribe tell a friend other than that thanks for listening